sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the, man, the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stomped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great winds that the horn was speaking. As I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was present before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. He told me and made known to me the inter interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, ever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, and it's teeth of iron and claws of bronze in which devoured and broken pieces and stomped what was left with its feet and about, and about the ten horns which was on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them till the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom." Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. They shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. 
And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominion shall serve and obey Him. 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Even when it's strange, even when we don't truly understand all what's going on, Lord, your word is good. Your Lord is your word is powerful. And it is something that we should study and come to know. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that for some of us who were across the sea in Nepal and Chile and Switzerland are now home safely. Some of us not completely well, but Lord, you have brought us home safely, and we thank you for that, Lord. We praise you for that. Lord, we pray for Robert and his cough, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to his body. We thank you that Noah could should serve and, 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 and lead us in worship this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would bring Robert well and, and bring healing to his to his to his throat, Lord, so that he can lead us in worship next week. Lord, we, we want to take the practice to just pray for local churches. Lord, we pray for Noah's church, New Beginnings, Lord. We pray for the congregation there. We pray for the, the, preach, the preaching of the word. And I don't know if they've already had their service or they'll have their service later. Lord, we pray that the word of God will be preached faithfully that it would be convicting to people's hearts and encouraging to people's hearts, that people who are there who have never heard the word of God before, never heard the gospel before of Jesus Christ, would come to love it and come to believe it and trust it, that you would save people. Lord, we pray for their ministries, their children's ministry, their youth ministries, their college ministries, their, their adult ministries. We pray, Lord, that they would be faithful to your word, Lord, that you would send them out to proclaim the gospel to, to students and to families, Lord. Lord, we, we pray for our, our brothers and sisters at New Beginnings, Lord. Pray that we would be able to develop a relationship with them, Lord, and be able to pray with them and, and, and have fellowship together, Lord, and be able to help one another uh, uh, spread the gospel across the city. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray for those who aren't able to be with us because of travel or being home for the summer break or for whatever reasons, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would keep them and that you would give them peace, Lord, that they would take heart whatever they're going through, Lord, pray that you would bring them back to us. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Pray that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let me say this uh, before I begin. Uh, I'm jet-lagged, and the sermon is jet-lagged, and I wanted to title this sermon Jet-Lagged. Um, so let's just pray that something will come out that is clear, that is edifying, that leads us to honor and glorify God and to trust in Christ more. Um, I do pray for that because I definitely need it. So I definitely pray for your uh, patience and your grace, but also pray that God's word would go forth. We know that it will. Um, I just want to thank uh, Stan and Sean for uh, preaching for, for me and, and for Ditton while we were gone. And we thank you for uh, First Southern and for Evan and Mandy and Jackson who were able to lead worship for us the last two weeks. It's so encouraging to have friends that can come help us out, right? so that our congregation continue to worship and continue to hear the word of God. We are so thankful for that. God is so gracious to provide help. And um, I want to just um, talk about something that's, again, jet lagged. Um, uh, this, you know, basically you're going on a, um, being in an airplane for 20 plus hours and, and trying to think about 
um, you know, this passage. This passage, when you read it, it almost feels like Daniel was in some type of jet lag, right? I mean, what he saw, I mean, I think some of my sleep during a lot of that flight was kind of what Daniel experienced, just kind of like a lot of images and a lot of weirdness and a lot of just insomnia and uh, trying to figure out uh, what's going on in my head and what dreams I'm having. I kind of felt very similar to what Daniel is experiencing here. And, um, but being able to just study this passage, it's very difficult. There's a lot of things going on here. And for a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers, they will skip this chapter because it's so difficult. It's so difficult to understand what really is going on. What are these beasts representing? What are these horns representing? What's really going on? And some preachers and some pastors will just skip over this because they're like, eh, I don't know if it's helpful to the church. I'm not really sure if it's edifying to the church. Well, obviously, if it's in the Bible, if it is God's word, that we should read it, we should preach it, we should teach it, we should try to understand what's going on and try to understand why God has placed this particular vision in the Bible for us to understand. Obviously, it's, it's going to a particular uh, context. This is Daniel, who is in the, who's part of the exile of Israel. They're in uh, Babylon and then become Persia and their empire. So obviously, this vision is very important to the people of Israel during that time, but also it's important to us. And I'm going to try to show how it is important to us and how we can gain a lesson and valuable information and, uh, about God and, and our understanding as Christians in this particular world. Um, first off, before I want to just kind of provide a little bit of an introduction here. Um, while I was on my uh, 15-hour flight from Dubai to Fort Lauderdale, uh, a lot of us had plenty of opportunities and time to watch as many movies as we possibly want. Uh, and so I watched, I believe, four movies over a span of five, 15 hours. And you can't get any sleep, right? I mean, you're sleeping, you're sitting in this, this very uncomfortable chair, and you're trying to get sleep, but it's impossible. So you might as well just watch a movie, right? So I watched a movie that was kind of on my bucket list of movies to watch, was The Darkest Hour, which is about Churchill, Winston Churchill, and kind of his first few years as Prime Minister of England during World War II. It's a fantastic movie. I would just encourage you to watch it. If you like the movie Lincoln uh, that uh, Steven Spielberg did a few years ago, you'll definitely like uh, Darkest Hour. And uh, what's so interesting about um, this particular story and, and history is that you would almost want to think that um, if if the kind of the vision that Daniel has here of these beasts and about these particular nations, you can almost think of like Churchill having a similar vision of Hitler, right? This like this this fierce and, and, and terrifying beast that comes out of the sea and it's, and it's devouring and it has iron teeth. You can almost kind of visualize that Churchill would have something similar to this, just identifying the, the approach of, of the Nazis and, and Hitler. And, and so he, the, the darkest hour is, 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 the, is talking, the first few, again, like the first really, the first year of Winston Churchill's uh, time as prime minister of England. And at this time, the war had been on for about over a year, and the Germans were just steamrolling across Europe. I mean, they invaded Poland. Uh, they, they, were, they were just, they were just, they took over most of Eastern Europe. Uh, they then approached France and quickly uh, invaded France and, and, and quickly started pushing the French and British armies to the sea. If you've seen the movie Dunkirk, Kirk, it's a kind of a similar story about just the British army of 3,000 members of the British army were basically marched, I mean, pushed to the English Channel. 
They were surrounded by the Germans. They were surrounded by the, the, the tanks and, and the bombardment of the, 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 of the uh, German Air Force. And there was fears at that time that the Germans would literally dr- push them into the sea and, and, and eliminate and destroy the British Army. And then eventually invade and take over the British Isles. And there was this, this pressure on Churchill by fellow members of the British Parliament to make peace with Hitler, to make peace with Germany, so that they would not get destroyed. And, and it was always hard not to want to listen to them at that time, because again, the, German, the British army were surrounded by the Germans, and, and with all evidence was showing that the Germans were eventually just going to destroy what was left of the British forces. And Again, he had this pressure to, to make peace with the, with the Germans, with the Nazis. And you just see that, that during this time, again, you would think that Churchill was just struggling with leading and, and leading his nation when all evidence showed that they had no hope, that they were going to eventually be destroyed by the Germans and that they were going to lose all their, their, their culture and their traditions and their way of life, and that they would be servants and slaves to Nazis and to Germany. And so this uh, pressure we see similar here in the vision that uh, uh, Daniel has this vision of these these nations and these these empires that were going to just devour uh, the world and that they were going to, and Israel was just a part of their their conquering and their conquest and their glory and that they were just going to be eaten away and, and destroyed and And Daniel was fearful. He was scared. He was terrified. He was alarmed by what he saw. And I just want to present kind of how this, uh, just a little bit of interpretation map to help us understand where nations come from. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, we see that God uh, uh, commands uh, Adam and Eve to have dominion over the world and to multiply and to spread. And what we see here is the cultural mandate that as humanity spread across the earth, as they work together, as they organize, they would create culture. When humans come together, it doesn't matter where they are. It could be Nepal. It could be India. It could be Russia. It could be China. It could be the United States. When people come together, they create culture. People organize and they come together. And then through, that, through those cultures, nations are birthed. And so we see kind of how nations come together, how cultures are created. But we see also in Genesis chapter 3 that sin entered the world, that man fell from grace, that God uh, tells the world that the world is split into two different camps. He says in Genesis 3.15, he, he curses uh, the, the serpent and says that there will be an enmity between the man, the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And that the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman will always be battling to, against one another. There will be a war against one another, the, the seed of darkness and the seed of lights. So we see these two different camps, these two different worlds that are battling against each other. And it's helpful with this vision here that you have Israel, the people of God, and you have these pagan or these nations that do not believe in God. And you have these war going against each other, this hostility towards one another. Since that day, since the day of the fall of man, those who allied themselves against God are enemies of God's people. We think of Cain. Cain was a serpent, I mean, seed of the serpent. And since he, he killed his brother Abel, 
We see the Pharaoh of Egypt who had a serpent right on his head. He is a seed of the serpent. He is a, he's one that has, who created hostility and, 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 war, uh, and, and, and caused suffering upon the people of the Hebrew people. We have Goliath as well. Goliath uh, hated God. He spoke against God. He spoke arrogantly against God. And David uh, killed Goliath and cut off his head. Okay, sympathizing what we see in Genesis 3 of smashing the head of the, of the serpent. So you always see in the Bible this warring against each other, the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the seed of darkness and the seed of life. We see in Psalms chapter 2, the kings of the earth wanted to break free from God. Again, seed of the serpent. Warring against God, warring against God's people. We see in Psalms 22 and Psalms 74, these animals, these bulls and lions and dogs that surround David. They're surrounding the people of God and they're warring against and and causing suffering and hostility against. God's people are surrounded by enemies. They seem too strong, too powerful and unstoppable. But God's people seem weak and helpless and without hope. And we see this in Daniel 7, that God's people are surrounded by stronger and, and, and more powerful and unstoppable forces. And they just seem weak, helpless, and without any hope whatsoever of any type of rescuing or freedom from it. So kind of the main idea is while it may seem hopeless, God's kingdom will be completed and his children will inherit it, his kingdom, in Christ. And the nature of their rule and their dominion is established by the cross. So kind of the first point is the history of nations. The history of nations. So we see here in the beginning of Daniel chapter 7 that the four winds of heaven are stirred up, stirred up the great sea and Kind of what is the great sea? Most likely it's the Mediterranean Sea, which is really the heart of the world at that time, right? If you had access to the Mediterranean Sea, you had access to a very uh, successful and and prosperous economy because you're connected to the heart of the world. So the great sea, and so Daniel saw this vision of the the great sea and these, these animals, these beasts were called forth from heaven. So God calls these beasts to accomplish his purpose and his plan. I think this is an important point to make when you're thinking about these. They're not just random beasts, right? They're not just random creatures that have no control. God is in control of this whole thing. Hence why they, the heavens, the winds of heaven stir them to, to come forth. God is in control of the chaos. Psalms chapter 80 We think about our enemies around us. Our enemies make us an object of contention among our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves, as the psalmist says in Psalms 80. The boar from the forest uh, ravages it. They move in the field and, and feed on God's people. You think about this. You're like, why would God, if God is in control, why would he send forth these beasts? What's the point? Why does he allow these things to happen? Why does he allow the enemies of God to, have, to laugh at and, and make a, an object of contention God's children and God's people? If God is in control, why does he allow his people to suffer by these beasts, by these nations? This is the question that Daniel 7 looks to answer. Why does a God allow all these things to happen to his people? Why does he allow them to suffer? So these four great beasts came out of the sea, 
Different scholars have different views on the identity of the four beasts. You may have your kind of, your four identifications of these beasts. And, um, and, and, and what we have here is, is a predictive prophecy from God to Daniel. Uh, predictive prophecies have important details about the future that God wanted his people to know so that they could be prepared and ready. So I believe there's an important lesson for us American Christians as well, so that we can be prepared and ready for the events of the future. I think that that's the major lesson that we need to get out of here is that, that we can't just see, we can't be distant from what's going on. Oh, that's to Daniel. That was, a hundred, that was thousands upon thousands of years ago. We're not Israel. We're not uh, an exile in, the, in, in Babylon or in Persia. So this has nothing to do with us. I think it's important that we remember that we are also Christians in a fallen world and there's enemies that surround us that want to cause us suffering. Therefore, there's something for us to be prepared for and ready for. I think that's important for us to learn here in this passage. Because one of the major lessons from the story of Daniel is faithfulness in difficult circumstances. You got two stories, two sermons, Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 6. Two different events where God's people were forced to be faithful in very difficult circumstances, right? So that is a clue to us that is a very important theme running through this book. Faithfulness in difficult circumstances. We all may be required to stand faithful to Christ under difficult circumstances. And the question is, will you trust that God is in control and he will, he will ultimately bring everything to completion in Christ? Will you, do you trust that? Or do you only trust in the circumstances being good? And positive. Therefore, if the situation is good and positive, obviously God is for you. But if the situation changes and the situation is negative or bad, God is obviously against you. Therefore, you can't trust him. God is good in the negative circumstances and in the bad and in the good circumstance. God is still good. So the first beast. Okay, again, like I said before, you may have a different view on what these four beasts identify. Power to you, okay? Um, again, there's a lot of humility going in interpreting this passage because it's, a, it's a, an apocalyptic vision, and therefore it's very difficult for us who are in the 21st century to be able to identify what's going on because we do not live during the, 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 the time of the Babylonian Empire. We, don't, we do not live during the time of the Persian Empire. We do not live during the time of the Babylonian, Greek, the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire. So it's difficult for us to identify directly what these beasts represent represents. So I'm going to do my best, and some of you may boo me after I say these things, but that's okay. We're all good. Uh, so the first beast uh, is Babylon. And the way that we kind of see this is we see that Daniel has this vision of a lion with eagle's wings. If you go online, actually, and you see some historical uh, artifacts from Babylon, uh, you'll see this lion with wings, okay? So easy identification here with Babylon. Even within this, this vision, we see that um, the lion had eagle's wings, verse 4. Then as they looked, its wings were plucked off. De, uh, uh, Pastor Denton preached on this about Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, that this is maybe identifying with his humiliation, that his, the, the, the king, the great king of Babylon's wings are plucked. He's humiliated when he became like a beast for seven years. And then he is then returned or restored. And we see this, he was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. So God used the nation of Babylon to humble and discipline Judah. God used Babylon for his purposes and for his plan. 
But at the same time, the empire of Babylon was not perfect. They were a, a people who did not believe in God, who did not worship God. And we have, we have evidence that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, did uh, at one point praise God. Right? We see him praising Yahweh. We see him praising the one God. But still, they were a godless people who mostly did not believe in God. The second beast, this is where I probably differ, differ from you, but again, bear with me here. Some would say the second beast is the Mede and Persian Empire. I'm going to say that it's the Mede. We see in Jeremiah 51, 27 through 28, you're more than welcome to turn there and kind of see um, this empire being uh, identified in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51, 27 through 28. A cool little practice that the poly Christians will do. You don't have to do this, but it's just kind of cool. Every time you read a passage, they say amen after it. It's really cool. Especially for the preacher, because they're like, all right, they're listening. Um, uh, this is uh, Jeremiah 51, verse 27. Stand up a standard on the earth, below the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations for war against her. Summon against her the kingdoms, Ararat, Minai, and Ashakinza. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up horses like, like bristling locusts. Prepare the nation for war against her, the kings of the Medes, with their governors and deputies in every land under their, of their dominion. And, and so we see, we, we see, yeah, there you go. See, isn't it really cool? You paid attention, you read it, you just like, amen. Um, so the second beast being the Medes, and those, those three kingdoms that I mentioned and I read, they were kind of difficult to pronounce, uh, Ararat. Those are the three ribs in the mouth of the bear, representing the three kingdoms that the Medes, the empire of the Medes, conquered um, during their reign. Now, they were a weak empire. Obviously, you see that they combined with the Persian Empire, and, and the Persian Empire became far more powerful and far greater and far, uh, uh, far uh, had a lot more influence than the Medes did. So the third, third beast being the Persians, we think of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was the first great king of Persia. And he is a very uh, prominent uh, individual in the Bible because he is the one that actually sent Ezra and Nehemiah back to, um, to the Promised Land to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And the, the Persian Empire paid for the resources of the building of the temple and the building of the walls around Jerusalem. And when we think of the, the four heads, we see this in the vision here, like a leopard the third beast is laying like a leopard with these four heads. The, the, the great thing about the Persian Empire was it was so swift. It would conquer land so quickly. And it, it went in four different directions. Um, it went all the way uh, to almost India. It, it conquered the North Africa. And, and it was a very prominent and very powerful empire. And God used the Persians to bring Judah back to the promised land and help to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. The fourth beast... Some would say it's Rome, but I'm arguing here that it's Greece. Fourth beast, and, and, and the fourth beast is different. It, it says that it was terrifying and dreadful and extremely, extremely strong. It had iron teeth, and it, it, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stomped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. We know more about the Greek Empire probably than the Persian Empire. If you've seen the movie 300, maybe you know more about the Persian Empire, and that's a graphic novel and made into a fictional movie. But the Greek Empire, we know about Alexander the Great, right? The great, the great uh, conqueror. And his empire, when he was alive, though he only lived for a short amount of time, he died when he was 33, but he had such a great, I mean, 
he conquered the known world very quickly. And his army was almost seen as invincible. It conquered the Persians. It all the way to India, all the way through North Africa. And it, it, it had a sh- very uh, uh, large empire. However, and, it, and, it, and the Greek empire, uh, it, it conquered all the territories of the other three nations, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. However, after Alexander the Great's death, the kingdom fractured into four parts. The, 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 the kingdom of Greece and Macedonia, the kingdom of Syria, the kingdom of Egypt, and the kingdom of Asia Minor. And then these ten horns here in this vision represent royal strength or the Hellenistic kings. And they had many, many kings. However, a little horn was subdue, will subdue three of the ten horns. One of the great kings of Greece was Anakis IV, who ruled the Syrian region of the empire. And he was far more powerful and, and vicious than any other king before him. He had conquered the kingdom of Egypt, um, and he had a great and terrible reign. So we see kind of with this little horn that is explained here in this vision that kind of maybe helps us understand that this little horn could have been Anakis IV, a king of Greece. Some of you, uh, some of you here you may totally disagree with the four beasts and how I identify them, and, but I think there's something important that we need to, need to see here. That What we need to see here is the rise and fall of nations by God's sovereign will. Whatever way you identify these beasts, that's totally fine. But what you need to realize, need to understand that those, these empires are no longer here today. So obviously they rise and they fell. God's sovereign will caused them to rise for a time and to then fall and to be conquered. Nations in their greed and their ambition are used for God's greater work. Alexander the Great in the Greek language, the New Testament was written in Greek. If it wasn't for Alexander the Great and and conquering so many lands and making it extremely important that his empire is united through one language, maybe the Bible is not as influenced and as effective as it was at that time, that so many people knew Greek during the time of the apostles and the writing of the New Testament. Roman Empire and the Roman roads. If it wasn't for the Roman Empire and unifying their, their empire through the Roman roads, that the gospel would not have gone forth as effectively as it did. God uses nations and empires for his sovereign will. We think of Henry VIII, the horrible king, Henry VIII of, the, of, of England, and the British Reformation that came out of his breaking away from the Catholic Church. God uses horrible nations and empires for his greater will and for his greater good. I think that's important to get out of, these, out of this vision that nations rise and fall because God wants them to fall and rise. We think of today, Britain was a great empire. It was a great uh, it had vast lands. Now it's basically one island, and actually they're almost losing Scotland. They don't even uh, there's, there's most likely in the next several years they won't even have Scotland anymore. It'll just be this one little country with one little city called London, and that'll all be in the British Empire. God causes nations to rise, and God has, causes nations to fall. India is rising right now. China is rising right now. Uh, we think of Dubai. A lot of us went to Dubai recently. That city in that area is rising. God is working so that his name will be glorified among the nations. That's why nations rise, so that God's glory will be spread and that people will know Christ Jesus. The second point is the presence of evil. 
This fourth beast, it worries Daniel. We even, you see in verse 15, he is, he is anxious. He, is, he wants to know the identification, the identity of this fourth beast. It was terrifying. But one of the unusual features of the fourth beast was the little horn. It had eyes and a mouth. It was greater than his companion. He spoke great things. But it also says in verse 21 that this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. He will speak words against the Most High. He will persecute the saints. He will think to change their way of life. They shall be given to them for a time and times and half a time. He will devour God's people. He will cause the people of God to suffer. The identity of the little horn will cause the people of God to suffer. He is arrogant and violent. He seeks only power and glory. I'm not going to read it. I was planning on reading it, but we don't have enough time. But if you ever pick up the Apocrypha, if you uh, grew up Catholic, this will be in your Bible. The first book of the, of the Maccabees, first book of Maccabees, is very interesting. It talks about Anakis IV. And it talks about what he did to Israel during his reign. And it is like, he, he was wrathful. He was violent toward them. He killed and murdered many of them. He would literally, he demanded that they sacrifice pigs in the Jewish temples. He was devastating to the people of Israel. He caused them to suffer more than anyone in their history. Uh, 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 he caused them to suffer. Evil is very real. We think of Kim Jong-un. We think of Hitler, Mao, Stalin, Putin, um, Saddam Hussein, others. They cause the people of God to suffer. Some individuals in history hate God and work with great effort to cause many to suffer. And some of these little horns will rise up and cause many in the church to suffer. What did Jesus say in John 15? He, he warns the disciples that they hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But what does he say? He says, take peace, take heart. I have overcome the world. The world is going to want to kill you. People, little horns, will rise up and cause the people of God to suffer. Be ready for it. Be prepared for it. Be faithful Persevere through it. Have peace in suffering. Take heart because Christ has overcome the world. Point number three is got good news from heaven. Good news from heaven. Sometimes it's hard to understand God's actions. Why does he cause these beasts to rise? Why does he cause this little horn to uh, wreck, wreck uh, and persecute the people of God? You, you wanna, you, if you, when you watch The Darkest Hour, you have sympathy for Churchill in 1940, you think of a man who was leading a nation with no hope. I mean, all signs showed that they were going to be steamrolled by the Nazis. I mean, that Nazis were literally going to push the 300,000 British army into the sea and bury them. Why would God allow the German Reich to gain so much power that Britain and France are brought to the brink of destruction? Why would he allow that to happen? Daniel is having this vision and he's alarmed by it. Why would God allow the world to fall into chaos and give his people over to wicked nations and violent kings? It's an appropriate and valid question, right? I mean, why would God allow it to happen? That's an appropriate question. I mean, Daniel, I mean, King David asked that question countless times to God. Why? How long? When will you ever rescue me? When will you show up? Why does God allow Job to suffer? Yet God is good in his sovereign plan over history. God brings good news into the chaos. 
Daniel sees in his vision that while these beasts are unleashed on the world, God takes his seat. It's, an, it's interesting in the story that like while all these beasts are rising up and doing their thing and, and conquering nations and, and devouring nations and steamrolling nations, God takes his seat in his court on his throne and he's prepared for judgment. This whole time he's allowing all these things to happen. He is in control of everything that's happening and he's about to bring judgment on these nations. He's in control while it may not seem that he is. He is good, righteous, and glorious all the times. So whatever is happening in the world, which may cause us to be alarmed, he is very much in control, and that is good news. The little horn is judged and destroyed, Daniel says. The psalmist in Psalm 22, he sees this bull with horns encompass him. The roaring lions look to eat him. Hungry dogs surround him, yet God is not far off. He will not hide his face. He hears our cries. He will rescue us, the psalmist says. He will rescue us to the Son of Man. We see in verse 13 and 14, this Son of Man, he, he comes to the Ancient of Days. He comes to God. He comes to his throne. And God gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all the nations will serve the Son of Man. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, it says. Mark 14, verse 16, Jesus identifies himself with this verse, with this prophecy. He says this to Caiaphas when, he is being, when he's on trial before his crucifixion. Jesus was sent by his father to establish a true and better kingdom. These kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, were great kingdoms, but a kingdom is coming that is far better and more true than the kingdoms that have come before Jesus was sent by his Father to establish a true and better kingdom, a kingdom founded by truth and grace and not political conquest. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. I've written on this passage, and I like the imagery that it presents. You may have not caught it before, but it's very powerful. It says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Think of that passage, triumphal procession. What it's referring to that in the Roman Empire, when the Caesars or the, or the generals would conquer people, they would bring them uh, through a parade. They would bring, basically drag the barbarians behind the, the, the chariot and show the people who they conquered. And what this is saying is, is that Christ is a far better king and general than these Roman generals. And he processions us through, behind him, as his sons, as his children, as his redeemed. And we are brought. We, are, we follow Christ. We are his conquest. He has bought us. We have been delivered and we have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We've been brought into his kingdom by his sacrificial life in whom we have redemption. We are barbarians who have been made holy and blameless. We're, we are barbarians. We are no different than the barbarians that the Roman generals conquered. But yet God, Christ Jesus, makes us holy and blameless. He doesn't keep us barbarians. He doesn't keep us in chains. He frees us. He died. Our life has died. And our life is hidden with Christ and God. We are part of Christ's profession. His triumph. We are citizens of Christ's everlasting dominion. Nations will rise and fall. Evil leaders will rise and cause many of our brothers and sisters to suffer. And many more will follow. Maybe even here in America, but Christ is leading a triumphal procession. 
By his blood and sacrificial life, he has established an eternal kingdom. Through faith, all have access to his kingdom. All may have become citizens of the good, eternal, holy, and universal kingdom. I think about my brothers and sisters in Nepal that I got to meet this past week, and they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And they are in a kingdom, they live in a country that does not let them worship freely. We were told that we could not preach the gospel in the streets or we would be deported or put in jail. They have fear, but they are part of a kingdom that is far greater than the Nepali nation, far greater than India, far greater than China, far greater than Russia, far greater than anything else that this world ever has produced. They are part of a greater kingdom, and we are now citizens together in one great kingdom. The kingdom of the cross. And this is the last point. I want you to get this. That so interesting about this vision is that Daniel sees this vision of the kingdom of God, the dominion of the Son of Man, and he gives it to the saints of the Most High. So we see that, that the kingdom is given to the people of the saints of the Most High. This is in verse 27. There's a reestablishment of Genesis chapter 1 that when we were created in the image of God, we were given dominion over the earth. And we were told to multiply and spread and have dominion over. Yet we lost that when we sinned. That the spreading of the image of Christ is now spread around the world through the redeemed, through the saints of the Most High. A dominion established in suffering, not in conquest. Christ's kingdom was established through the cross, not through political conquest. A dominion that will grow in suffering and defeat. A kingdom that is established by defeat and by suffering will then grow by defeat and suffering. Totally different in our concepts of kingdoms. Kingdoms are seen as grown through might and conquest and military. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, grows and expands through suffering. The nature of the cross shall be reflected in our rule. If we have been given dominion, if we have been given a, a, a kingdom, we are to rule it in light of the cross. I think that's a really important note here is that we're not to be like the other kingdoms. We're not, like to be, we're not supposed to be the fifth kingdom that are just like these other beasts who ravage and, and conquest and destroy. We are the kingdom of the cross. We're the kingdom that grows through suffering. We're the kingdom that grows through defeat. We're the kingdom that lays our life down for our friends. We are the kingdom that loves others before ourselves. We are the kingdom that loves our enemies before ourselves. That is the kingdom of Christ. That is the kingdom of the cross. And and what does Paul say in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2? I preach nothing to you but him crucified. Because the cross changes everything. It changes the way that we do relationships. It changes the way we do business. It changes the way that we do communication. It changes the way that we think about everything. The crucifixion of Christ changes our entire thinking about power and resources. Our rule is defined by suffering and defeat. Our rule is defined by the universal suffering of salvation. All nations, language, and people. The gospel must go to those who are our enemies, who are different, who live on the other side of the world, and those who live next door. The cross affects the interpretation of verse 27. Without the cross, we would just be like any other kingdom. We are in the kingdom of the cross, not the sword or the bomb or any other symbol of power or might. We are the kingdom of the cross, a symbol that symbolizes suffering and defeat. The kingdom of the cross is better and more powerful and more beautiful than those kingdoms represented here or ones that have followed. 
We must proclaim the beauty of the kingdom of the cross, the world, and expect that many will oppose our efforts, but the kingdom will be established, it will be completed, and it will reign forever. So be at peace, take heart. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the, of the cross, will overcome the world. What a great promise. When we think about our brothers and sisters that are suffering right now, when they see power, and they see a lot and hopelessness around them, they, they're surrounded by power and might and, and this sense of chaos, they can remember and take heart and be at peace because they know that they are citizens of a kingdom far greater than they, those kingdoms. And the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that they're citizens of, will overcome the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray, Lord, that through my babbling and through my, just, through my jet-lagged mind, Lord, that you brought understanding to this passage. That whatever is happening around us, when it seems like the powers around us are far, far more powerful and stronger and unstoppable, that we have no hope. Lord, that you are in control and you are far greater than the, the nations and the kingdom around us. You're far greater than the dictators and the, the evil people, Lord, that want to cause us to suffer and want, us, want to, to bring persecution against us, Lord, that you're stronger and that we are citizens of a, of a greater kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of the cross. And Lord, we may suffer. We may feel defeat but we know that your kingdom grows when we suffer and are defeated. We know, Lord, that your kingdom is more powerful and more glorious and more beautiful than all the kingdoms of this world. Lord, get, take, help us to, have, to take heart and be at peace and to persevere and have endurance. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.